This episode of Stage Brother goes beyond my usual remit in that it is mostly about computer games. I am not a gamer, I haven't played many games, and so my points of reference are not from that world. Um, also, this episode is replete with spoilers. If you have not yet played The Last of Us or The Last of Us 2 and think that you would like to, please don't listen until you have. And for what it's worth, I do think that as many people as possible should play these games, because they are quite remarkable. Um, if you have played them, or if you think that there's no way you're ever going to play them, then by all means continue to listen. Welcome to Stage Brother, a podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 31, Ordinary Violence and the Last of Us. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar There is a scandalous kind of beauty in imagining the world after humans have been destroyed. And it's different to the operatic melodramas of Apocalypse, which have a habit of unfolding in epic narratives of blood and thunder. In Visions of the Apocalypse, humans still take centre stage, even as the seas are boiling, or the angelic hordes are marching, or the asteroids or the bombs are falling. After the end, things tend to be quieter. They also tend to be uncanny in the Freudian sense of the word, something familiar that returns in the form of a monster. This kind of quiet, uncanny beauty can be found in all sorts of strange places. Season one of David Attenborough's Planet Earth, for instance, each episode illustrates a different biome in which humans are mysteriously absent, imagining a world in which we had perhaps never set foot. Or Dennis Kelly's television programme Utopia, from several years ago, recently remade in the USA, I understand, although I haven't seen that in which scenes take place in huge sweeping vistas of farms, housing estates, schools and office buildings, all of which have been emptied of people. Or the ruined island of Fukushima, which became a tourist hotspot after its inclusion in the James Bond film Skyfall. All of these representations remind us that the places that humans inhabit will take on a different life when we are no longer in them and will develop a beauty that exists because we don't. Seeing that, looking at a landscape that has been emptied of humans and finding it beautiful is unsettling because you realise that you're not the focus. And that's a very difficult thing for humans to do. And it's this kind of scandalous beauty that is the setting for today's episode, which concerns Naughty Dog's video games The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2, both of which take place in a world where humans have mostly been wiped out. It's a world in which creepers and trees have burst through suburbs and shopping centres, skyscrapers have been hollowed out by the wind and cities have begun to sink back into swamps. And as is often the case in contemporary post-apocalyptic fiction, the beauty of the surroundings sits at odds with the savagery of the action as the remaining survivors fight bitterly to stay alive. What I'm interested in is what I'm calling the ordinary violence of this world, a violence that stems from and is bound to a particular environment. 
And given that this environment is, as I have said, beautiful, its violence is a contraction of that beauty, which is what makes it scandalous. To try to explain. In the, the game The Last of Us, the first game, released in 2013, the player takes control of Joel, a 40-something-year-old man who has since survived two decades of a post-apocalyptic America. A mutant strain of the Cordyceps fungus has destroyed the brains of most of Earth's human inhabitants and reanimated some of them into zombified killing machines. The few humans who remain uninfected are mired in a kind of bestial tribalism that is now common across 21st century post-apocalyptic stories. Joel, we learn, is still alive because he excels in the violence of his world. He's unwillingly given custody of Ellie, a young girl who is immune to the virus, and he's tasked with transporting her across country to a medical facility that may be able to synthesise a vaccine from her antibodies. So the narrative is a reasonably straightforward quest that takes Joel and Ellie through the desolated ruins of former cities, encountering and killing clusters of infected and also tribes of murderous survivors. The gameplay is brutal. Joel kills his assailants with a variety of tools, mostly scavenged from ruined buildings, buildings that contain notes from dead families whose corpses are often staggering around in the basement. Although there is often the opportunity to sneak past enemies rather than throttle or bludgeon or shoot or stab them to death, the violence of the world is not a choice. It is a fact. And this violence, this fact, this aspect of the post-apocalyptic landscape is common in such narratives, all of which owe a debt to the work of Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes was a 17th century philosopher whose book Leviathan proposes that the state of nature is one of all-out war. Humans' most primitive urge, according to Hobbes, is savagery, left to our own devices without the trappings of the civilised world around us, we will inexorably sink back into this savagery, and we thus require strong political and spiritual leadership in order to be protected from the worst aspects of ourselves. Obviously, this is a philosophy that is very popular amongst government, because it legitimises government. It is a highly conservative worldview, but it's one that seems to have been accepted en masse in popular fiction that imagines both the end of the world and whatever is to come next. The prediction almost universally is that humanity would slide into chaos. I wonder sometimes whether people actually believe this or whether they conveniently adopt it because it makes for more, more bloodthirsty stories. These days we have everything from Cormac McCarthy's 2006 novel The Road to the comic book series The Walking Dead, the television series The Rain, Daybreak, The 100 Films, including everything from Into the Woods to Children of Men. The Walking Dead is a particularly interesting example of this, because I don't know who's watched the television series, but it seems that in every single series they try a new form of government, and in every single series that form of government is shown to fail. These films, books, television series establish tropes of violence that we become familiar with, cannibalism, torture, mutilation and murder. And all of these, it must be said, occur within The Last of Us. In the game's prologue, the player navigates Joel through the initial outbreak, and in the process, his daughter is killed. There is nothing that you can do to stop this. In fact, you play as the daughter for the first scene, the first couple of scenes, moving 
with your father through a town that is thrown into chaos and in which infected have started to emerge. You reach the edge of the town, the perimeter, and the daughter is shot to death by a soldier. The narrative then jumps forward 20 years, and during the interval, Joel has suppressed his grief at his daughter's death and developed the ruthless brutality that he needs to survive in his new habitat. And by the time the story properly begins, by the time he takes custody of Ellie, Joel can torture and murder with professional and offhand efficiency. And then, as is so often the case in modern stories featuring burnt-out and violent men, he's nurtured back to something like humanity through his paternal affections for Ellie. And the more he loves her, the more ferocious the violence of his defence of her becomes. Towards the end of the game, Ellie goes out looking for medicine for Joel, who is injured. When she doesn't return, he embarks upon a killing spree. And the people in his path are terrified of him. Despite being heavily armed, they run away. In the final sections of the game, he delivers Ellie to the Fireflies, and the, the Fireflies being the resistance organisation that have been trying to synthesise a vaccine. And when he learns that Ellie will not survive the medical procedure needed to remove those antibodies, he murders scores of people in order to preserve her life. You control Joel at this point, but you have no choice about murdering people. If you don't murder people, then you die. The game forces you into this position. By preventing the development of a vaccine, Joel dooms humanity. And what is set up in this final act in the game is a paradoxical view of love. In this violent place, Joel's love is produced through a selfishness that destroys life at the very point of its sanctification. Now, there are attendant factors to be considered here. Joel's buried grief for his daughter, for example, which is foregrounded earlier in the game as he rescues Ellie from a burning building and calls her his baby girl, the name that he used for his daughter in the prologue. One of the running themes in the game, though, is the danger of becoming attached to anyone in a place where people can be off-handedly killed any second. The irony, though, is that most characters believe falling in love to be dangerous because it opens up the person to emotional agony. In fact, in the last moments of the game, the real danger of loving somebody is revealed as something very different. In a place where the sanctification of life has been almost completely erased, learning to love, thus learning to re-sanctify life, may drive you to atrocity. That is why it is dangerous to love. The sequel, Last of Us 2, is a much bigger game in terms of preoccupation, narrative and space. It takes place four years after the events of the first. Joel and Ellie, who is now 19, have returned to a town that they encountered in the first game, a settlement called Jackson, which is home to Joel's brother Tommy. Joel and Ellie have built a life for themselves there, although Ellie has recently stopped talking to Joel since he revealed that he, can, uh, he had murdered the Fireflies in order to save her life, at the cost of potentially discovering a cure to the pandemic that has swept the world. In these opening chapters of the game, there are a couple of passages where the player takes control of a new character, a muscular young, one, uh, muscular, young, sorry, muscular young woman called Abby. 
In these scenes, Abby is cut off from her group and rescued from an enormous cluster of infected by Joel and by his brother Tommy. She directs the two men to where her group is hiding out. Once there, Tommy is knocked unconscious by her friends and Abby shoots Joel in the leg and beats him with golf clubs. Abby is not introduced and her motives are left obscure. She's obviously been wronged by Joel, but we don't know why, and she doesn't say who she is beyond her name. My assumption as I played the game was that the game developers were pointing to the magnitude of Joel's past crimes, and that Abby's narrative function was to do with the terror of your sins finding you out. In fact, it was scarier that we didn't know who she was, or what her motives were, and perhaps this is how the game would leave it. She was just a ghost from Joel's past turning up to seek revenge. We're given to understand in the first game that Joel had done many questionable things and had killed people in order to survive in ways that he was not prepared to talk about. From this point onwards, Ellie bursts in, and Abby has Ellie restrained, and then Abby beats Joel to death as Ellie watches. And then you play as Ellie, purely. And a fairly predictable quest for retribution takes Ellie, her lover, Dina and uh, Tommy to Seattle, where the over the course of three days, they systematically track down and kill members of the group that killed Joel. On the night of the third day, Abby surprises and overpowers them in their hideout and screams at Ellie down the barrel of a gun. The expectation at this juncture is some form of a boss fight in which, as player, you will take, continue to control Ellie and you will overpower and hopefully kill Abby. And if this had happened, and Ellie had killed Abby and never discovered the reason for her hatred of Joel, then there would have been a satisfying hollowness to the revenge. Over the course of her request, Ellie has done things which have gone beyond her licence, shall we say. I'll talk more about that in a minute. In killing Abby, she would have taken on the darker aspects of her father figure, the aspects that had led to Joel's death in the first place. And so even if Ellie had survived this game, which is never entirely certain, then she would suffer a comeuppance at some point in the future in the same way that Joel had. The loss of Ellie's humanity would have rendered her victory pyrrhic. This is something that is usually a core value in revenge tragedies, and I did feel that this game followed the conventions of a revenge tragedy. In revenge tragedies, an act of violence usually sparks retribution, which metastasizes into a network or a culture of violence, begetting more violence. But the key thing is that the violence that is produced in a revenge tragedy does not work in opposition to the world in which it happens. Instead, it mirrors the world itself, the violence of the world itself. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to think about this, because violence is something that we usually think of as a rupture. Something that breaks the everyday running of society, an outburst that is designed to cause harm, and which institutional forces then seek to rectify, punishing those responsible and attempting to repair damage for those who've been affected. That's the way it's supposed to work, at least in an ideal world. An act of violence breaks the everyday running of things and is then corrected using institutional um, forces in order to ensure that those who have been affected are 
um, taken care of and those who've committed the violence are brought to justice. But a revenge tragedy is not set in an ideal world. A revenge tragedy takes place in a world in which revenge is a necessary and logical conclusion to the institutional processes themselves. A revenge tragedy takes place in a world in which violence is not a rupture to the everyday running of society, rather violence is the everyday running of society. For me, one of the great examples of this genre is Thomas Middleton's early 17th century play The Revenger's Tragedy, in which the, uh, the aristocrat um, Vindici returns from exile to avenge his wife's murder by the lascivious duke. Over the course of the play, Vindici and his siblings concoct ever more and sadistic plots to destroy the duke and his family, and, spoilers, they themselves executed at its conclusion. The, uh, the way in which they kill the duke is, is one of the kind of most grotesque moments in Jacobean tragedy that I'm aware of, where Vindici carries around his wife's skull through most of the play and uses it to talk to people. And the skull is covered in poison. And the duke is tricked into kissing the skull. And the poison then begins to eat away at his flesh while Vindici stands and watches. But the end of the play sees Vindici and his brother and sister being executed. And Vindici's final words are, We die after a nest of dukes. Adieu which is a very kind of um, animalistic image to evoke, the idea that the duke and his family were reptilian somehow, they were not human. And so this idea that the uh, these aristocrats that Vindici killed were not human invokes a kind of pest control, although one that could only be carried out by another pest. Vindici himself is not human. None of the people who inhabit the world of the play are really human. They're more or less than that. They live in a world of violence and they themselves are violent. And so therefore their fates are part of the plan of the world. It's also a world which is sliding into apocalypse, it must be said. There are signs in the sky that keep being remarked upon which indicate that everything might be coming to an end. Jacobean tragedy was obsessed with the apocalypse and this is often read. I think I've mentioned in episodes for this podcast before in the light of the forthcoming revolution, which would later be called the Civil War. Um, so in a revenge tragedy, um, the act that produces the need for revenge doesn't come from nowhere. In fact, it's a proper function of the world itself. The Duke's murder of Indici's wife is ordinary in the revenge tragedy because in the world that they inhabit, power is granted to the ruthless and the corrupt. Vindici's revenge is also ordinary by the same token as is his violent death, along with the violent death of most of the characters. All of these things are logical consequences of the world that the characters inhabit. And examples of this kind of ordinary violence are littered across contemporary fiction, particularly contemporary American fiction. I was thinking as I was preparing this about the Western, for example, a genre which is built on ordinary violence. The lawless frontier, something that exemplifies a violent culture within which atrocities and their retribution are an everyday occurrence. And in thinking about the Western, kind of everything from the outlaw Josie Wales to No Country for Old Men, Westerns don't always take place in the Wild West. That is where they were initially founded. But the um, the model of the Western, the kind of individuals pitted against a hostile environment, seeking retribution for past um, slights or pursuing their own selfish or murderous ambitions, 
are something that have been translated into the modern world as well. And I think one of the most interesting examples of this translation of a, of a Western into modernity is David Cronenberg's film History of Violence. And again, I will spoil this, so if you haven't seen the film, please stop listening and go and watch it. It's really good. History of Violence is a, is a film set largely in a kind of quiet suburban outback town somewhere in America. Um, and in it, this town, which is inhabited by a man called Tom Stahl, who runs the local diner, is um, invaded by two outlaws who give the sense of arriving on horseback, even though the film is set in the 21st century. They turn up at Tom Stahl's diner and they threaten his clientele and him with the intention of killing everybody. We know these men are killers because we've already seen them um, commit atrocities. Stahl kills both of the men, and the resulting news coverage attracts the attention of a mob boss in Philadelphia who becomes convinced that Stahl is this mob boss's long-lost brother. So he sends henchmen to the town to bring Stahl back and to face the consequences of his past misdeeds. In his review of the film, the novelist J.G. Ballard said that Cronenberg's films have always had us gripped by the story, but aware that something unpleasant was going on in the seats around us. That there was something about what is shown on screen, often grotesque, often horrifying, that reminds us of the world in which we ourselves live, that part of their power, part of their um, seductive appeal lies in their exemplifying of something that we like to keep hidden. And he concludes his review, Ballard does, by focusing upon Edie, Stahl's wife, played by Maria Bello, as the character who points towards this unpleasant thing that is going on in the seats around us. Ballard says, What is so interesting about the film is the speed with which the wife accepts that her husband, for all his courage, is part of the criminal's violent world, in spirit if not in actual fact. A dark pit has opened in the floor of the living room, and she can see the appetite for cruelty and murder that underpins the foundations of her domestic life. Her husband's loving embraces hide brutal reflexes honed by aeons of archaic violence. So Ballard reads the film on an allegorical level, as a rendering of the violent substructures upon which all supposedly civilised life resides, and which those who dwell there have inherited. He liked to say that the suburbs dream of violence. Personally, I don't think Ballard goes far enough here, because in viewing the film, it's very clear to me that Edie doesn't just accept her husband's violence. When she discovers the violence and overcomes her initial shock, she discovers the violent resonant within herself and finds desire in this resonance. There are two sex scenes in the film one before the revelation of her husband's past, and one after it. In the first, Edie dresses up as a cheerleader so that the couple can simulate teenage sex on their daughter's bed in a safe parody of transgression. The daughter is staying with friends that night. The second sex scene occurs as a consequence of a physical fight after Edie has discovered that her husband may be this mob boss's brother. And in this fight, Stahl momentarily drops his nice guy image and he is about to strike her. She spits fuck you at him. And then as he moves away, she draws him to her and they have sex on the stairs. The sex is brief and aggressive and after its conclusion she kicks him away, more attentive to the conditions of her own violence than to his. It's troubling, and it's troubling for a number of reasons. And I must stress here, 
that I'm staying with Ballard's allegory rather than addressing the topic of domestic violence itself. But I do acknowledge that the way in which the scene plays out and the way in which I've described it has troubling elements concerning uh, victims of domestic violence being complicit in that. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm doing is, what I'm trying to do, is discussing Ballard's view of the film as an allegory for humans, that when he sees Edie accepting Stahl's violence, Tom Stahl's violence, she's really understanding her position within the human race. My point is that not only does she understand it, but she's also excited by it. Maria Bello, as I said, is the actor who played the, uh, the role described the sex scene, the second sex scene, as the character engaging with her own darkness. In the language of this podcast episode, I think it's the character engaging with the ordinary violence upon which her life and the life of her family has been built. And here we get a Cronenbergian model of the spectator. Somebody dragged face to face, not just with the violence of their surroundings, but with their enjoyment of that violence, which is a deeply unsettling position in which to be put. And that, I think, is what is disturbing about Edie. By manifesting her enjoyment of the violence of her own world, she reflects the same impulse in us. Coming back to The Last of Us 2, I said that Ellie's narrative follows the conventions of a revenge tragedy and sets up the conditions of a satisfying conclusion within the rules of that genre. Ellie lives in a catastrophic world, one in which all normative rules have been destroyed and replaced with systems of intense ordinary violence. People may be beaten and killed at any moment's notice by living or by infected. Ellie has a conversation with her lover at one point and they compare notes of the first uninfected humans that they had killed, both of them with children when they did this. In order to survive in their world, you need to be a murderer. And so bearing this in mind, Abby's killing of Joel in a is a moment of ordinary violence itself, explicable and justifiable in the context of the world that they inhabit. It is not a rupture. And of course, the same thing can be said of Ellie and Tommy's quest for revenge. This is how the world is supposed to play out. So as players, we play through this quest. We don't set the story. Our function is to negotiate Ellie through a predetermined set of events as skillfully as we can. And the skill aspect is an enjoyable element of the gameplay. We sneak up on people and throttle them. We beat people to death. We shoot them in the head if we're a good enough shot. We manipulate a teenage girl traumatised by the murder of her surrogate parent and the rage that we share with her at witnessing that murder gives us a thrilling licence to shoot, stab, throttle, burn and bludgeon any number of human assailants. Inevitably though, the number of arbitrary killings starts to weigh against this licence and the game designers orchestrate certain moments specifically to undermine our conviction and to show the monstrosity of what Ellie's becoming. On one occasion, we must press buttons to torture a suspect while a camera settles into a close-up of Ellie's face. On another, we stab a woman in close combat who subsequently turns out to be heavily pregnant. The gameplay mechanics align our souring of purpose with Ellie's, and by the time the denouement occurs and we prepare ourselves for the final boss fight with Abby, the awful clarity of Ellie's revenge is all but completely obscured. Instead, however we get something very different, and the game capitalises upon a set of clues dropped throughout the narrative. After the prologue, Abby vanishes from the game. We learn from eavesdropped conversations that she's been arrested, that she's escaped, and that her whereabouts are unknown, but we don't know why. And then, just as we're preparing to fight her, the narrative travels back in time and we start again, this time playing as Abby. 
First, there are flashbacks to the hospital at the end of the game. We learn that Abby is the only daughter of the surgeon whom Joel killed to save Ellie. We then jump forward, and we begin Abby's story just after Joel's death, over the three days that Ellie had been in Seattle. And during this story, Abby abandons her soldiering duties to go in search of an ex-boyfriend. In the process, she's captured and rescued from a quasi-religious cult, but, and saved by a brother and sister who are on the run from that cult. Protecting the brother and sister becomes Abby's driving impetus. In the process, she betrays and murders large numbers of her former organisation. And in many ways, Abby's story is more interesting than Ellie's. For one thing, she has much greater access to the landscape of Seattle. This is her home, and she has contacts here, and she has memories here. We're shown the inside of the place where her paramilitary organisation is based. We're also shown the place where their enemies, a quasi, uh, as I said, a religious cult called the Seraphites, are based. Abby is muscular, and so the combat works differently. She does stealth, but she's also able to tackle enemies head-on in a way that Ellie can't. And as you play through her narrative, you start to see the consequences of what Ellie's been doing in her quest, of what you've been doing. The people whom you tortured and killed are given backstories, their characters are fleshed out, and their motives for Joel, uh, for, for killing Joel, are revealed. The ordinary violence in which they participated is rendered as ordinary. Playing as Abby doesn't exonerate Abby and her friends. Rather, it refocuses your attention upon the ordinary violence of the world itself and takes away the false justification that had presumably energised you as you played through Ellie's quest. It's a highly disorienting mechanism, and one of the consequences is a peculiar form of shame. The dawning realisation that you had exploited the traumatised rage of a bereaved teenager in order to commit atrocities, and that you would enjoy yourself while you did it. It's manipulative, and I'm not surprised that many critics have reacted angrily to this. Not surprised or slightly disheartened, I have seen and read lots of reviews of The Last of Us 2, and there are an enormous amount of people who felt rage at playing Abby. They felt robbed, they felt um, that they were being taken for a ride. All of them, I think, had missed the point. Now, I must stress again at this point that I am not a gamer, and that my points of reference are not video games, and so I don't understand the world. And perhaps I've missed something very significant, but I think reading the, the, the game through the lens of a revenge tragedy and taking into consideration the, the quality of ordinary violence that it set out to expose, playing as Abby made absolute sense and dramatised the enjoyment of ordinary violence upon which we as players had capitalised up until that point. And so the manipulation that the game performs is fascinating because it demonstrates our enthusiastic complicity in ordinary violence when we think we can get away with it. And I imagine that J.G. Ballard would have been proud of this, because this was always his argument. The apparent civility of modern life masks a relentless appetite for cruelty, an appetite which, given the slightest chance, will break through the surface of our everyday realities into something monstrous. And it takes something like The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2, embedded in a world whose everyday violence is openly displayed and whose navigation involves active participation in violence to show us this. I will conclude where I started. There is a scandalous beauty to imagining the world after humans have been destroyed. And part of the beauty, part of the scandal, is the way in which that catastrophic environment gives license to the darker parts of our imaginations, drawing the ordinary violence of our own world into the spotlight and showing the awful implications of our enjoyment as we participate in it. Thanks for listening. So